for the curious, the peculiar, the interested, and the thirsty. Welcome to another Mimosa Mystery Monday. Cheers. Let's get weird. Okay, I was trying to go on YouTube because I wanted to have an accent. I wanted this episode to be called Murder Most Foul, Part 1. But I am really bad at accents. I don't know why I keep trying, but I keep trying. Maybe one day I'll have a British accent and then I can say Murder Most Foul, Murder. That's how they don't say the R at the end. Murder. Anyways, that was ridiculous. Okay, I need to chill. Grab a beverage, settle in, because it's about to get dark in here. So I grew up in a very sparsely populated part of Canada, and I know a surprising number of murderers or people that have been murdered, which is very strange because it's not a big area, and I'm sure it hasn't affected my mental health at all. <laughs> Laughing uncomfortably. Like, I don't just mean, oh, I went to school with someone that seems like they're going to kill someone. I mean, I actually went to school with a girl that got murdered. I had a babysitter whose daughter got murdered. I had another babysitter who actually murdered a child, not while she was babysitting me. It was after. And I went to school with someone who's currently awaiting trial for allegedly murdering his stepdad. Um, that seems like a lot of people for growing up in a province that only has just over a million people. So on today's episode, I have two stories for you. One is actually not about a murder at all, but the last story definitely is. So just to start it off, to kick off the mood, did you ever go to school with someone where you're like, okay, for sure this guy's going to kill someone someday? I did. And for me, that person is Blaine M. And I'm literally, I'm scared to use his last name because the last thing I need is for him to get to hear this and then I get like a stalker or I get in trouble or something crazy. So now this guy has not killed anyone to my knowledge, but you know when somebody just kind of gives off the killer vibe? So his name is Blaine. I met him in kindergarten first. Uh, we had kindergarten and grade one together. And I remember that he was always dirty and smelly. His hair was always dirty and his fingernails always had black underneath them. His clothes always looked unwashed all the time. And when you're little, you just think like, wow, this boy is gross. And now that I'm older, I realize this poor child must have been neglected very badly. So I went to kindergarten and grade one at one of the first schools in Brandon that needed to have a breakfast program. So that basically means that the area was filled with so much poverty that the school had to initiate a program to feed children breakfast because for some of those kids, that was the only food they got that day. My family was fine. My mom's ex-husband had a good job, which I'll save for another episode about abuse because his job really helped him. But even in the building that we lived in, there was quite a bit of poverty. So I used to walk to school every day and I started knowing what check days were in grade one because every two weeks I would try to go outside and I would have to step over my drunk neighbor's body to get out the door or I'd have to move her hands out of the way so that the door didn't hit her. So, okay, the word murder. I had a really weird initiation into that word. 
On my way to school and from school, I had to walk past this big blue house on the corner that was across from the school. And that house was always filled with older kids who were super bad. I don't know if they were like foster kids or what the fuck their deal was, but it never failed. Every single day after school, there would be a big group of kids and we they knew that we'd all have to go to that side of the street at some point and they would follow us and stalk us. And so we'd usually go as a big pack and if you were the slowest runner that day or if you got your backpack caught by one of those kids, they were going to beat the shit out of you. So I only got caught a handful of times. Thank goodness I was a pretty fast kid. But the one that sticks out in my mind is getting caught by a girl that must have been 12 or 13. She was a lot bigger than me. But she caught me by the backpack and she yanked me backwards so that I fell. And when I stood up, she punched me square in the stomach, right? Like, you know, right under your lungs, right where you lose your breath for a really long time. She punched me so hard and she called me a gross white bitch and said, you're all murderers and screamed at me. And I was fucking six. So I didn't really know what that was or why this girl was so angry at me for just walking home with my dinosaur backpack. And that was really the first time that I heard that word not be used in a movie and also directed at me. Um, I wasn't aware that I was a murderer at age six. But anyways, I digress. Back to Blaine. I just wanted to tell you about my first time hearing being called a murderer. Back to Blaine. After grade one, I moved to another school. And wouldn't you know it, this kid also moves to the same school across town. So one day, we're having this thing called Pioneer Days. And you have to dress up like a pioneer, which basically was just girls have to wear dresses and boys have to wear pants and shirts with no writing on them. And we all had to bring a designated pioneer snack and learn how to make fucking candles. So I get paired up with Blaine as my partner. And I'm horrified because I'm in grade two in a new school. And he's so smelly and he has no friends. And I'm not doing much better in the friends department myself. So this pairing is like a societal death sentence. So basically, whatever. I have to bring cucumber sandwiches, which I didn't realize pioneers ate. I have to bring cucumber sandwiches to this thing, and he gets told that he has to bring a drink of some kind. So I don't think pioneers ate cucumber sandwiches, but who the fuck am I to question Canadian school system, right? So this kid shows up with a few cans of grape soda, and I'm horrified because I don't know a lot about pioneers, but I do know they do not drink canned grape soda on the vast expanse of the Manitoba fucking prairies in 1840. Anyways, we get made fun of all day for his grape soda choice. And at the end of the day, we're all outside in the schoolyard and Blaine is crying by himself at the side of the school. I figure it's my partnerly duty to go and see what's going on. So I walk over to him and I ask him if he's okay. And he looks at me with these big brown soft eyes and his little dirty face and tells me that I won't understand. And I tell him that I might. And he tells me, those were all the drinks that they had in the house, and his mom said she doesn't care about pioneers. So at that moment, that may have been my first realization about why this boy was always dirty, and why he was always angry, and why he always had on the same sweatpants. His mom just didn't care. 
I didn't know what that was like. My mom cared. I had a mom that cared. She made me costumes for Halloween, and she even made me pioneer cucumber sandwiches. But on the opposite of that, I also had a really mean stepdad. So one time, I was so scared of him that I actually pissed my pants. So I knew what it was like to have a parent that didn't like you. So I thought, maybe he just has a mom that's mean like my stepdad. And I asked him if his mom was mean to him, and he told me that he he didn't think that she liked him very much. And so I sat down and I told him that my dad didn't like me very much either, and we exchanged stories. And I don't want to go into detail because it's taken me years of therapy to stop replaying these things in my brain, but I will just say that his mom was very mean if what he was saying was true, and her and my stepdad would have made a fine pair of child-abusing assholes. Anywho, grade two ends, and I move again. So I'm off to George Fitton for grade three, four, and five, and I meet my friend Melissa, who I'm still friends with all these years later. Also, George Fitton had a school song, and I still remember all of the lyrics. George Fitton School a special place to be wherever life we lead us and wherever we may roam we'll think about george fitton when we're far away from home so fun fact about me my brain is only programmed to remember lyrics i don't know why a few weeks ago my husband and i were playing this game called heads up and the clue was tacos so he says okay we ate 12 of these yesterday and i was like what the fuck did i eat 12 of yesterday And I never got the guess. And he was like, how do you not remember that we ate 12 tacos yesterday, but you remember lyrics that aren't even in English? And honestly, I have no idea. I still remember lyrics to this. um, It's like a Japanese cherry blossom song, only in Japanese from grade two choir, but I don't remember what I ate yesterday. So I am a man of mystery. What can I say? Anyways, I digress back to Blaine. So grade three, four, five, no Blaine. Grade six, I we move over across the field to m- the middle school, and looky, looky, who it is. Blaine is in my grade six class. So now it's winter time, and most of the school is on a ski trip. You know who's not on a ski trip? Melissa and I, because number one, it's expensive, and number two, there's no fucking way that anybody in my family is going to pay for me to go on a ski trip, and number three, Melissa had a single mom. And number four, it's cold out and fuck skiing. So we were the kids that had to stay at the school and play games because that's just what you did, even though it's supposed to be a school day, but all the other kids are skiing. So we just have to be there. We're in the classroom completely alone by ourselves talking about prank calling this boy named Philip that Melissa had a crush on or me talking about this boy named Bryce Caselny, and I was convinced that he was the love of my life because he looked like a young Billy Zane, you know, that dark hair and those really dark lashes. Anyways, a while into talking, we feel like we're being watched, and we look around, and we're literally alone in the room. So a while later, we hear sort of a rustling sound, and we get up to look around the corner. I peek out in the hallway, And the hallway is a ghost town. There's nobody there because the entire school is skiing except for like the janitor and Melissa and I. So we don't see anybody. And then I sort of like feel a presence beside me. And so I peek through the side of the door that's propped open to our classroom and Blaine is there. He's hiding behind 
the open door, spying on us, watching us for who knows how long. So I yell at him because it's terrifying. And he steps out from behind the door with a greasy face holding a Ziploc bag of fried chicken. Anyways, very weird. I don't know. He just was, he was just weird. And it, like now I feel bad because I know better. He's obviously a child of trauma, much like myself, but I didn't hide behind a door and eat like a bag of chicken while I watched people. Anyways, about 10 years ago, I get a text from Melissa and she asks if I get the Brandon Sun, which is their local paper. And I'm like, no, why? And she tells me there's an article in the paper about Blaine because apparently he got caught jerking off at an adult video store and they made him, I guess, clean up his mess before he got arrested. So I'm not saying that this guy's killed anybody. I'm not saying he's murdered anybody, but he definitely gave off the vibes like, okay, something is not right here. And I do think about him often. I wonder what happened to him. Anyways, moving on. This story is about a real murder. And I knew the person, sort of, that it happened to. And this is crazy. So around the same age as the Blaine incidents, uh, we went to school with this poor girl named Erin Chorney. And her and I were not friends. Um, I didn't know her that well. She was like blonde and super popular. And I was not one of the cool kids, as I'm, I'm sure I've established in some of my previous episodes. Anyways, we weren't friends, but I obviously knew her because we were in the same classes. So according to reports, this girl had an extremely volatile relationship with her boyfriend, Michael Bridges. So in April 2002, 18-year-old Aaron goes missing. And the population of Brandon was around or just under 49,000 at that time. So it's not a big place. And girls don't really go missing there that often. Um, especially not girls from like well-to-do families. So now, as I'm sure you're familiar with any crime stats, the first suspect when a woman goes missing is usually her male acquaintances. So just a quick stat for you on the Global News and the Canadian Press, they released a report in January 2019 that said every two and a half days, a woman or girl is killed in Canada. These are just the ones that they know of. That stat, from what I read, also does not encompass the issue of Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women, which is a whole other podcast, and that's a, that is a can of worms, and it's really scary. Anyways, back to this one, back to Erin. So according to her mom, the night she went missing, the phone rang at about 7 o'clock, and Erin told her mom that she was just going to go out for coffee with a friend. She never specified which friend. So that night, Erin doesn't come home, even though she said she would. And her mom was disappointed, but not overly concerned, as this was somewhat normal behavior for her. The next day, when Erin still hasn't returned home, her mom, Deborah, starts calling all her friends that Erin normally hangs around with. And none of the friends admit to having been with Erin the previous night. So now her mom is a little bit worried. Now, Erin... According to her mom, she's been going through somewhat of a rebellious phase around this time. So after a couple days, her parents are worried because normally they would hear from her, but they're not sounding any alarm bells just yet. This behavior wasn't super uncommon for her. So a week goes by and her parents finally realize, okay, this is past normal for Erin. This is way too long. And they file a missing person report with the Brandon police. So... 
A press release goes out to the public with her photo, of course, and Dallas Lockhart is assigned as the lead investigator to Aaron's case. So he interviews her family and all of her closest friends, as a good cop does, including this girl that was a really good friend named Carla that she had met at a treatment facility when she was 14. So now Dallas Lockhart, Lockhart our, our police officer, he gets to interviewing Michael Bridges who was Aaron's on-again, off-again, really trashy 22-year-old boyfriend. So Michael confirms to Lockhart that Aaron was at his house on the night of April 21st, and that was the last day that anybody saw her. He claims everything was great. He picked her up from her mom's house, and he took her back to his place. She trimmed his hair for him. Uh, She gave him a shoulder rub, and then he says that she said, okay, I'm going to go see a friend, and she left, and that was the last time he saw her. And he says she left around 11.30 that night. Now, a few days, apparently, after Aaron went missing, two parents called police and they said that their kids were playing by a church and they saw a suspicious shape under a blanket with some hair sticking out. So they ran back to tell a teacher and the teacher called the parents and then the parents called the police. So by the time the police got there, they said there was nothing of interest there. It's just kids making up stories and whatever. Now, I could go into details about all the garbage that happened after this poor girl went missing, but there's a ton of information online, and there's a really great video on YouTube that documents the whole thing. So if you want those details, um, check out. It's called The Murder of Aaron Chorney, and it's made by the show Blood, Lies, and Alibis on the ID channel. Um, It's really well done, and it even has interviews with her parents and friends and a little bit of the police footage from... um, interviewing with Michael Bridges. So anyways, I want to get to the crazy part. So the police had this asshole in their radar the whole time. They tapped his phone. They even searched his mom's vehicle because it was, you know, obviously this douchebag still lived at home with his mom. They had a search warrant and they searched the home. Nothing. The only thing that they found was a handwritten note by Michael, allegedly, And it was all the questions and answers that had happened at his initial interview with the police. So he was a sneaky little fuck. But that's all they found. You can't get, you know, you can't get in trouble for writing down questions that you, or answers that you gave the police. So fast forward, around the first anniversary of Aaron missing, so it's been almost a year, a cryptic note gets delivered to her parents' residence. I think it was her mom's house because I believe her parents had separated. Um, The full note has never been made public as far as I could find, but there were bits and pieces that were released and they spoke of Erin being beautiful and she was, she was so beautiful and that the ground was frozen and someone had tried to dig her up. And the letter also said, I'm sorry for what he did. Like, okay, whoa, so now we're throwing a he into the mix. So they apparently got nothing off of the envelope or letter, no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing. I'm assuming that whoever wrote this letter probably watched all of the episodes of CSI Miami back in the day, so they knew all the tricks of how to not get caught. But then another letter shows up in a restroom somewhere in Brandon, and the letter says it's about Aaron again, and it says that they're sorry, they feel guilty, and that the police are close to finding the body. So now everyone's frustrated by all these fucking cryptic letters going around, and her poor family just wants to know what happened. They knew This whole time that Michael was obviously the best suspect, but they have nothing on this guy except for the fact that he's kind of just a douchebag. 
So the cops come up with a plan that is straight out of a John Grisham novel, and that's the only crime writer I could think of for reference. <laughs> Anyways, so Dallas, the lead investigator, apparently he had gone through a course about a year earlier about undercover sting operations. So him and his team, they all meet up with the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It's like the provincial police. And they start mapping out a very new strategy for them and something that they had never done on this level. Like, I can't even make this up. It's so crazy. So September 23rd, 2003, they start their sting operation. So they send a really hot undercover officer to Bridges' house to conduct a fake survey for a local radio station. And she uh, tries to get him to sign up for a contest to win tickets to Calgary Flames game in Calgary, all expenses paid. Um, and for those of you that don't know, Calgary Flames is a Canadian hockey team. So at the time, Winnipeg didn't have the Jets, otherwise that probably would have been closer. But anyways, so he says, yeah, he signs up for this contest for a local radio station. And wouldn't you know it, a month later... The police call undercover, of course, to tell him that he's the lucky winner and he gets a paid trip to Calgary to go see the Calgary Flames. So this guy gets to go to Calgary and he has a blast. Everything is paid for him. So it's hockey games, strip clubs, and a booze budget even. So he also gets to meet the other contest winner. And this contest winner is a lovely gentleman named Brock. And him and Brock, they have a great time in Calgary. And when they get back to Brandon, Brock and Bridges, they become real buddy-buddy. Now, as I'm sure you can guess, Brock is a cop. So now, in December 2003, Brock, our main man, he takes his buddy Michael to a deal of some kind just outside of Brandon. Now, Michael's in the car and he sees Brock get handed an envelope full of money now, Bridges, Michael Bridges, is clearly a piece of trash, and he thinks that his friend Brock is into some real shady shit, and he fucking wants in, because there's nothing else to do there. I, I know, because I used to live there. Anyways, Michael thinks his pal Brock is taking him under his little crime wing, which is wonderful, um, because Brock is an undercover cop trying to figure out what this idiot knows about poor Aaron. Now, these guys meet up regularly for lunches and beers, and then one day, our homeboy, good guy Brock, he gets a phone call from a guy that he calls the boss, and Michael hears Brock recommending him for some kind of job. And so slowly, over the course of a few weeks, Michael gets to help with these jobs, and he thinks that they're all real shady, under-the-table crime business things. So he seems really comfortable in the skeezy life of a small city crime boy. So this idiot thinks he's being sort of initiated into this thug life and he has to prove his support and his loyalty over time so that he can get in with the boss. Now, he's doing all these menial things to prove that he's dependable and blah, blah, blah. And now the cops know they need to get this game fucking flowing. So they decide to stage a big dramatic scene that they need Michael to see. Uh, so it gets set up that some money, quote unquote, has gone missing from the group. And the story is that a girlfriend of one of the gang members has taken some money. So our big guy Brock, he grabs our guy Michael to go with him and track this girl down to her supposed motel room. 
So now Michael is sitting in the car like a little bitch and Brock goes into the motel room with this woman and he makes it look like they put on a show and he makes it look like he is brutally assaulting this woman who is obviously also undercover. Now, it's like clothes are being ripped. There's blood capsules, like like glasses getting broken. They put on a whole show while Bridges sits in the car like a good puppy and Brock comes out covered in blood, fake blood, and it's all just to show like, hey man, we love violence against women and it's cool if you do too. And it's made very clear to Michael that in order to be part of this organization, you have to be completely open about your life, including your past. So everything has to be put on the table. So now it's been almost two years that Aaron has been missing and Brock and our friend Michael Bridges meet up at a diner in Winnipeg, which is about two and a half hours away from Brandon, where Michael lives. They're supposed to be talking uh, talking about Michael meeting the big boss the next week. Now, everything is being recorded, and it's basically made obvious to him that if he's done anything in the past, the boss has to know about it because If you don't come clean about your life 100% and the boss finds out and he finds out everything eventually, it could get you into some serious trouble. And they're trying to tell him like, oh, you know, the boss, he can can take care of a lot of things. So if there's anything that we need to know, you need to tell us now so we can take care of it before we let you into the gang. So Michael starts to open up to Brock and he kind of says like, oh, you know, this thing happened. It wasn't supposed to happen. It was an accident. It was an accident. She, we were having an argument and it got out of hand and it was her fault and she fell. And so they get back to Brandon and Brock knows, even though this guy is like, oopsie, that was a bad accident. It's not enough. They need evidence. They have nothing. They don't even have her body. So our friend Brock meets our friend Michael the very next day. And now Michael thinks he's big shit. And now he thinks he can talk about whatever he wants because the boss can make this all go away for him. So feeling much bolder after a good night's sleep, he tells Brock that he choked Aaron until she was dead and then he buried her in the Brandon Cemetery. Now, I just want to take a quick side note here. The Brandon Cemetery is fucking terrifying. And that's going to be on another episode about ghosts. But that place, whoo, doggy, it's terrifying. Anyways, so he takes his friend Brock to the graveyard and sort of points like, hey, I buried her over here. And you know where he shows? You know where he shows them? He takes him to the fucking mayor's mom's grave. And I can't make this shit up. This is real. So Rick Borotsik was the mayor of Brandon from uh, 89 to 97. And it was on top of his mom's grave that Michael is telling Brock he put her body. So brutal. So obviously, like, this guy is on tap. So they get permission to excavate parts of the grave And wouldn't you know what they find? Blankets, the blankets that this poor girl had been wrapped in. So they still need more evidence. So she's wrapped in plastic, she's wrapped in plastic and a blanket and she's over top of someone else's grave. So basically, when he killed Aaron, he took her to the cemetery with a shovel. He found the most recently dug grave. He re-dug a bunch of soil and then he threw her in. So he's a total fucker. So now anyways, fast forward February 2004, 
the cops are setting up to meet our guy at a hotel. So this is Michael's big boss meeting, and the cops are trying to make sure that they get an airtight confession from this fucking clown. So Brock makes him basically do a dress rehearsal to make sure he's got all the details correct for the boss, because the boss is a real tough guy. So this motherfucker is ready to spill the tea. He says he brought Aaron home, they argued, and he choked her until she falls to the ground. Then he realizes like, oh shit, she's still breathing and he's got to finish this. So he, he's like, yeah, no, this is not going to work for me. So he goes, fills up the bathtub, drags her over, and he drowns her in the bathtub. So he's telling Brock all of this. And our poor guy, Brock, our undercover lovely agent is sitting there listening to this asshole talk about like brutally murdering a girl that he said that he loved. And he can't even make a face to give anything away. So he asks Michael why he originally told him that it was an accident and why he's changing his story now. Because they need to make sure, this is all on tap, it's all on video, and they need to make sure that he never feels at any time that he was coerced into giving this confession. They want this airtight, like they want to nail this guy. So with all of this being recorded, Bridges basically says he didn't know what to say at first and he didn't want to give too many details because he knew he did a bad thing. Oh, so now we have a confession. So Michael gets arrested. Um, there is a, I guess, a search warrant or whatever you would call it um, for her to be, for that grave to be completely excavated. And obviously they find Aaron there. So she finally gets, her family gets her back and she gets a proper burial. So Michael, he's in jail. So June 29th, 2005, Michael Bridges is convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life, which in Canada really is like 25 years. Like, it's very rare for anybody to go past that in Canada. So I just want to read a quick blurb to you that I found online from CTV News from October 2019, so just a few months ago. So this is from CTV News. Okay. Uh, a man whose taped confession led police in Brandon, Manitoba to find the body of a missing 18-year-old buried in another person's grave has taken steps to apply for early release. Michael Bridges, 39, was convicted of first-degree murder in 2005 in connection with the death of his former girlfriend, Erin Chorney. The conviction came with a sentence of 25 years before Bridges is eligible for parole, but a criminal code clause that was repealed in 2011 could lead to an earlier release. Earlier this month, a judge gave the go-ahead for Bridges to apply for his parole eligibility to be reconsidered under what is often called the Faint Hope Clause in the Criminal Code. It gives offenders with sentences of more than 15 years before parole eligibility the chance to ask that their sentences be reduced, but only after having served a minimum of 15 years of the sentence. Before the clause was removed from the criminal code, only offenders who were convicted prior to December 2nd, 2011 can apply for it. So he's applying for early release. You know what that means? Because it sounds like he's got a pretty good track record, there's a good chance that this guy could get out early. And if he does get out early, he'll only be in his 40s, which is really scary. I have friends that are in their 40s. That means 
he could potentially have a very happy life ahead of him with kids and a family and a puppy. And I don't really know if I agree with that. Just my thoughts, Canadian justice system. Anyways, that about does it for Murder Most Foul Part 1. Oh my god, I did it again. I can't do accents. I don't know why I keep trying. <sighs> One day I'm gonna get it. Anyways, the next Mimosa Mystery Monday episode will be about my former babysitter and a murderous... <laughs> I can't say that word. Murderous? Murderous? Murderous classmate that killed his stepdad. I feel like that's enough talking for me today. If you have any stories that you'd like to share for future episodes or any comments or any future episode ideas, you can find me at Prosecco and Ponies on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email me at ProseccoWithTony at gmail.com. Stay weird, friends. <laughs>